been this slow train wreck. And here in chapter 16, we turn a new page and we meet the Lord's grace to us in the person of David. The Lord is going to do a new thing. So let's listen to the new thing that the Lord does in David. Chapter 16, verse 1. Hear the word of God. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked upon Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, Let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Well, Father, here we are, your people with the word in front of us, and we ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. We need your word. Amen. 
So we'll start with an obvious fact. The obvious fact is this. First and second Samuel is a story. It's a long story, but it's a story. And as we think about stories, their nature, we have to say that, that stories have the ability, they have the power to change us. And so as we, we listen to them, as we pick them up and read them, as we watch them unfold before our eyes, they have the ability to, to reach in our hearts and to begin to rewire our hearts. So stories change us. They, they change our affections. As we read stories, they, they change what we love and what we hate. They, they, they change our ambitions, what we want to do with our life, what we, what we don't want to do with our lives. They change our, our values what we want to be like, what we, what, what we want to be known for. And this is what the story of First and Second Samuel has been doing. It's been reaching into our hearts and has been shaping us. Just think about all of the, the characters and stories we have met in this big story. We first met Hannah, a godly woman, prayerful, mighty in song. And as we looked at her story, as we considered her humility and what she, she did with the Lord, what happened to our hearts? Well, our hearts were tugged towards true religion. And then from Hannah's story, we, we traveled to Shiloh. And in Shiloh, what did we meet? We, we met Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And we watched these two wicked men pervert the, the priesthood. And what was going on inside of our hearts as we, as we watched that? Well, we were disgusted by these men. They, 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 were, they were perverting the priesthood, and, and our hearts wanted to turn away from them. And then from this priesthood, Samuel came. And the Lord spoke to him, and through Samuel, the Lord spoke to God's people. And through Samuel's powerful ministry, repentance and, and faith was renewed among the people of God. And as we listened to Samuel, what happened in our hearts? We found the same things happening to us. We were renewed in faith and repentance. And then Saul came, and Saul had the look of a king. He was tall, taller than anyone else. He had a, a kingly appearance, but as the story unfolded, we saw that, that Saul did not have the heart of a king. We watched his story. We saw his pride. We saw his disobedience. We saw his cowardice, and we were led to cry out as we watched his story, Oh, Lord, would you save us from Saul and a Saul-like heart? But there was a glimmer of of light in the midst of Saul's story because Saul had a son and his name was Jonathan. And Jonathan was a righteous and faithful man. We remember the scene, the Philistines are in, are in front of Jonathan and everyone is running, everyone is scared, but Jonathan is full of faith, so he says to his armor bearer, speaking into his heart, nothing can hinder the Lord. And then they went off, just the two of them, destroyed some Philistines and sent the whole army into flight. And what happened when we listened to the Jonathan story? Our hearts were encouraged. We were made bold, and we wanted to follow Jonathan into the fight. And so First and Second Samuel has been dealing with our hearts on all sorts of different levels. Each of these stories has been pushing and pulling us, stretching us, and challenging us, shaping us, and reshaping us to be the sort of people God wants us to be. Now we're entering into the most important part of the story of First and Second Samuel. All the stories we have worked through so far, the story of Hannah, Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, Samuel, Saul, Jonathan, has been preparing us for the story in front of us. They've been preparing us for the emergence of David. And in this part of the story, David is going to stand before us, and as David stands before us in this part of the story, God is going to begin to do his most important work in our hearts. He's going to do this. He's going to create within us 
a deep attachment of love and loyalty to David. The point of this section of the book is very simple. God is going to turn our hearts toward David. And we need to state this in the strongest of terms. The story of 1 and 2 Samuel is obsessed with David. The story is obsessed with David. He towers above every other character. Just think of our solar system. At the center of our solar system is the sun, and and all the planets are are held in orbit by its gravity. And the same thing happens in 1 and 2 Samuel. David is at the center of this story, and all the characters orbit around David. And for this reason, David demands our attention, our praise, our affections. And even when we find David in sin, and we're going to find him in grievous sin, what does the story do? The story doesn't pull back from him. The story doesn't turn away from him. Instead, the story sets David before us unapologetically, calling us to look at David. Even when David is disciplined with the rods of men, and 2 Samuel is a book of discipline as we get to that part of the story. David is going to be disciplined again and again and again. What does the story do? The story is never ashamed of David. And if we are reading the story of 1 and 2 Samuel correctly with both faith and the help of God's Spirit, we too are going to find ourselves obsessed with David. Now that might sound a bit odd to you, obsessed with David. Maybe we're getting a bit off balance here as we talk about David, this love that our hearts should have for him. But we have to understand obsession with David is the key to making proper use of 1 and 2 Samuel. Obsession with David is like the channel. And when we're obsessed with David, we're going to find God's grace and mercy flowing to us. For the more we look at David, the more we'll see of Jesus. And the better we understand David, the better we're going to grasp Jesus. And the more our hearts are inclined toward David, the more we're going to find our love for Jesus increasing and growing and expanding. Now, this can be a challenge for us because we often operate with a a faulty reading of our Bibles. And so we can be guilty of reading our Bibles in a really fragmented way. So think of the, the traditional children's storybook Bible. So you pick up the storybook Bible, you just open it up somewhere, and you you read a story. It's short because it's for kids. There's colorful pictures. It's it's an enjoyable read. Some of the details are sanitized. And so you read the story. The pictures are there, and there's some moral lesson. And then we shut the book, and it's over. And the next day, we do the same thing. We open up the book. We read a story, look at the pictures, get a moral lesson, and shut the book. And we just keep doing that day after day. And we can be tempted to do this very thing with the David story, to to treat it in a very disconnected way with the rest of the Bible. We do this because David's story is so interesting. It's so engaging. Here is this boy. He's drawn in from the fields, keeping sheep, and now he's anointed king over Israel. Then we see David. he, He goes off into battle, and he kills Goliath when no one else would enter into the field of battle. We see David being chased around the, the wilderness. We see him anointed king and reigning over Israel. And we treat his story like the children's storybook Bible does. We, we pick it up, we read it. Oh, that's really interesting. And then we shut it, and then we move on to the next story. But here's the thing. We can't read it in a disconnected way with the rest of the Bible, and we can't because the apostles didn't read David's story like that. So when we turn to the New Testament, we find the apostles reading the Old Testament, that they, they saw more in David than just an interesting and entertaining story. When the apostles looked on David, they they saw Jesus foreshadowed in his story. 
When, when the apostles examined David's life, they, they found the seeds uh, of Jesus' ministry and identity present in David's story. When they studied David and his life, they found the mold that Jesus would come along and fill up and overflow. The apostles, as they read David's story, they saw it was integrally connected to Jesus' story and that neither of these stories make any sense without each other. And so it's interesting when you read the apostles, they're always making use of David. A couple of examples help us see this. So one example comes from Acts chapter 2. So you remember this scene. There's Peter, and he's standing on the day of Pentecost, and he's preaching to the crowds. And he's preaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, who does he turn to to tell the story of Jesus? Well, he turns to David and he tells us David was a prophet. And as a prophet, what did David prophesy about? He prophesied about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Another example helps us too. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says what? He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And what Paul is doing, is he's writing to a younger man in the faith, Timothy, and he wants to encourage him. And how does he encourage him practically, tangibly? He reminds Timothy that Jesus is the offspring of David. There's encouragement there for us. And the interesting thing is this connection gets even stronger when you turn to the Gospels. So the book of Matthew tells the story of Jesus. And how does Matthew begin his story about Jesus? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew is saying. If you want to understand the story of Jesus, you better connect him to the story of David. And Luke's birth story is even, draws an even tighter connection. The angel appears to, to Mary and the angel says this, Luke 1.32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. In fact, the most powerful evidence to drawing this connection between the life of David and Jesus comes from Jesus himself. Jesus consciously modeled his ministry on the life and ministry of David. Just think about that. As Jesus walked around Galilee doing ministry, he was consciously doing his ministry in light of David. So Jesus, when he wanted to explain his identity to his disciples, what did Jesus say? John chapter 10, verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. To explain his controversial actions to the Pharisees when Jesus was in a dust stop with them. What did Jesus do? Well, he turned to David's story. He said to them in Mark chapter 2, verse 25, Have you never read what David did? What Jesus is saying, Pharisees, if you understood the story of David, you would understand my ministry. In fact, the most powerful evidence of this comes at the cross. Jesus is nailed to the cross, and he is in the midst of his suffering. And when he gives vent to his suffering, what does he do? Well, he turns to David, and he makes use of David's own words. David, Jesus quotes David in Psalm 22, verse 1. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So all of this means something for us. It means that if we are to approach David and his story and to read it correctly, we need to approach it as Jesus and his apostles did. These stories are connected. When we read David's story, we should be looking at Jesus' story. And when we look at Jesus' story, we should be looking at David's story because they fit together. And this means something glorious for us. 
Because if we're faithful to read these two stories together, when we read David's story, what's going to happen? We're just not going to get a nice moral at the end of the story. We're going to see the Son of God incarnate. And we're going to find his grace and his mercy flowing freely to us. We'll look at David, and David's going to show us Jesus and what Jesus is like. So that's a long introduction to 1 Samuel chapter 16. But it sets the stage, and it gives us a proper perspective how we should be handling the David story. So here we have 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we need to do some work in this chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 16 is, is quite simple. It has one goal. Its goal is to introduce us to David. And so we're going to handle chapter 16 under four headings. The four headings are these. A new start, a wise God, a strange plan, and a glorious provision. A new start, a wise God, a strange plan, and a glorious provision. So a new start. So let's enter back into the story of First and Second Samuel. Entering back into the story is a bit like walking into a funeral. You walk into a funeral, people are crying, people are grieving, and chapter 15 ends on a note of profound grief. Verse 35, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. The text wants us to key in on Samuel, his emotions. Samuel grieved over Saul. And the way the text presents Samuel's emotion is important. This was no quick cry for Samuel. This was no passing mood. Samuel was disturbed and tormented by, sins, by Saul's sin and failure. And as we imagine Samuel's situation, surely there's just a, a host of thoughts circling through his mind. Samuel's probably thinking things like this. Is this the end of Israel? What's going to become of God's kingdom and, and God's plan? What's going to become of God's promises? We have to understand that Samuel's just not being depressive here when we read these words. Samuel grieved over Saul. There was good reason for this grief. Go back to Samuel chapter 12, verse 25. That was Samuel's last speech to Israel. And how did that speech end? Well, Samuel said this. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So why is Samuel grieving? He is grieving because of his own preaching. He must have thought and believed, surely God's judgment is coming. These people have turned away from the Lord. What happens next? Well, I preached that sermon. I know that by heart. God is going to come. He's going to sweep away Israel. The story must be over. But what Samuel expects isn't what happens as we look into the text. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. God's word comes to Samuel, and it's shocking. The Lord says this, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send Jesse, you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. What is the Lord saying? Samuel, stop grieving. The story is not over. And what's happening here? Good news is breaking over the head of Samuel. God is not coming in judgment. God is not going to give Israel what they deserve. God's kingdom is not going to end here. Instead, what is he going to do? He's going to provide Israel with a, a new start and a new king. And as we consider this text for ourselves, we find good news here for our souls. Because in this text, looking at Samuel's grief and then the Lord's word to him, we see the basic contour of the gospel revealed. 
Israel and Saul's sin. What did they deserve? They deserve to be swept away. But what does the Lord do? He says to Samuel, stop grieving. I have provided a new man for Israel. The kingdom will carry on. And this fits into our stories as well. We have sinned against the Lord. We deserve to be swept away. But what has the Lord done? He's provided us a new start with a new king. And isn't this what we hear in the gospel again and again and again? We're aware of this pattern in the gospel. Think of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is writing. He says this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's working hard to describe our sinful state. And what do we deserve? We deserve to be swept away. But what does Paul say? These are glorious words. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with the Messiah. new start with a new king. That's our story. That's our story. What God did in 1 Samuel 16 is what God has done exactly for us in the gospel of Jesus. And so the story moves on, and we can move on to our second heading. We see a wise God in this story. So the Lord sends Samuel, and Samuel heads off in his mission, the Lord's mission, And he's got a very simple job to do. Verse 3, the Lord says this, Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So right from the get-go of this mission, we get a different sense about this new king. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Saul's kingship was demanded by Israel. And the text of Scripture goes to great lengths as the Saul story unfolds that that Saul was Israel's choice. They demanded a king like the nations, and the Lord gave them a king like the nations. But here, everything is changed. The people aren't seeking a king. What's happening? The, The Lord is seeking a king. And so the scene unfolds before us. Jesse and his sons are invited. Jesse and his sons are consecrated. And Jesse and his sons appear before Samuel, and then there's this examination process. One son appears before Samuel, then another, and another. And so, according to common sense, the firstborn son comes before Samuel first. It's Eliab. And Samuel looks at this firstborn son, and he is impressed by him. We get to go inside Samuel's head here in verse 6. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord intervenes. As the Lord looks at Eliab, the Lord speaks to to Samuel and reveals his intentions. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We have to pay really close attention to the language used here. Because the language that the Lord uses as he speaks to Samuel is so revealing. We were presented with a Saul 2.0 here in Eliab. Eliab is what? He is tall. And how was Saul described to us? Saul was described as a a tall man. And what does the Lord do with Eliab? He does not simply just pass by Eliab, say, oh, he's not the guy. What's the language of the text? The Lord rejects Eliab. We go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and what did the Lord do with Saul? He rejected Saul. 
what's happening here where the Lord is not looking for a man who is tall and proud. Instead, he is looking for a man who is small and humble. And this should remind us of Hannah's song because we've been prepared for this great moment, this anointing scene. The Lord, Sam, Hannah told us how the Lord works. Chapter 2, verse 8, she sang to us, she said, Yahweh raises the poor from the dust. Yahweh lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of power. And as we remember Hannah's song, we remember this God works differently. He exalts the, the, the small and the humble. And so son after son is presented to Samuel. Seven sons in total, but the Lord does not choose any of these men. And finally, word comes to Samuel that there's one more son of Jesse. And Jesse tells us about this one, and his words are important. Verse 11, there remains yet the youngest, or it could be retranslated, there remains yet the smallest, but he is keeping the sheep. And it's here with this announcement of the smallest that the Lord makes his choice. The Lord chooses David, which means beloved. And the setup for this is crucial to understand the Lord's mind. When the youngest son comes, the son who was excluded from the sacrifice and, and the feast and this important meeting with Samuel, when the smallest of Jesse's children come, then and only then does the Lord choose his man. Verse 12, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And what do we see here in the midst of this scene? We see the wisdom of God at work. And what does the wisdom of God do? It confounds and shames the strong and the proud in this story. In our pride, we would choose Eliab. There's the man. He looks like a king, just like Saul, but the Lord does not choose him. And as we think about the gospel story of Jesus, is this not the very thing that the Lord has done in the gospel? Who has the Lord anointed to save us? Who has the Lord anointed to rule and reign over the entire world? He has anointed the one no one expected, the son of Mary. A boy who grew up in Nazareth, a man who had no form or majesty that we should look at him. A man who was crucified on a Roman cross. And as we look at the David story, we see the wisdom of God confounding the proud and the strong. And we see the work of the gospel there. We see the gospel message as God yet confounds the strong and the proud. The story keeps moving. We can move on to our third heading, a strange plan. So David is anointed, and something happens when David's anointed. He is met with divine and supernatural activity. Look down to verse 13. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So David is anointed as king, and then he is equipped with everything that he needs to be the king of Israel. The Spirit of God is going to carry him on and empower him for this work. That's not the only divine and supernatural activity that takes place here. We move down a verse, and we find verse 14. So David is clothed with the Spirit of God to do this work, and what happens to Saul? Saul is stripped of the Spirit's clothing. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And verse 14 catches our attention. It's an odd verse. A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. We don't know much about this spirit, but the text makes a few things clear. First of all, the text tells us it was sent from God. God sent a harmful spirit from the Lord to torment Saul. This should make sense to us because we have been learning throughout this book that the Lord is the sovereign king. 
He brings low, he exalts, he, he kills, he makes alive, he brings down to Sheol, and he, he raises up, and he sends harmful spirits. That is what Yahweh does. Second thing we learn is that it has a profound negative effect on Saul's life. A different way to, to, to translate torment would be to, to cause great fear, to cause terror. And as we read Saul's story, we're going to see Saul filled with what? Paranoia. And third, it seems that this, this spirit and its effects would come in spurts and fits. For a time he would be seized and then it would, would pass. But we can't get distracted by the spirit because the text doesn't indulge our many questions. We have all sorts of questions. Well, how does this work? But the text doesn't indulge them. Rather, the text presents a problem. Saul is tormented. And is there any balm for Saul in the midst of his torment? Is there any fix for him? And there is a solution. And what is the solution? The solution is David. Verse 18, one of Saul's men say this to him, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. And so what happens? Verse 21, verse 22, verse 23. David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit of God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. We need to think about this whole scene as it's unfolding in front of us. So at the beginning of this chapter, what happens to David? He's anointed by Samuel. And we have to remember who Samuel is. He is the kingmaker. He is the kingmaker. He comes, and what does he do? He points the finger at David. He's going to be the next king. And what happens after that? Well, the spirit rushes upon David, clothes him for kingship. We can say this, David is ready to go. He's ready to take the crown. He's ready to get up on the throne and rule over Israel. But what does the Lord do in chapter 16? Just think about the David story, how it's unfolding before us. The Lord makes David wait. And not only does the Lord make David wait, but he makes David do what? He makes David serve Saul. And as we will see in the coming chapters, not only will, will David serve Saul, but, but David will be persecuted by Saul before he ever gets to sit on the throne or wear a crown. And as readers of this story, as we watch chapter 16 unfold in front of us, we say, this is a really strange story. See, this is a really strange plan, God. God, we, we see David, you've told us in his name. He is the loved one. He is beloved. He is, he is your choice. He is humble. He is lowly. You have equipped him with the spirit. He is ready to go and serve Israel and rule and reign over him. But what do we find? He has to wait. He has to serve. He has to suffer before he ever gets to reign. And as we think about the life and ministry of Jesus, we see a striking similarity, don't we? Surely Jesus meditated long and hard on David's life, the pattern that David set before him. And the Lord Jesus explains David's life to us in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Jesus says this to his disciples. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. David's story points us to Jesus, and Jesus' life follows the same exact pattern. He has to wait, he has to serve, he has to suffer, and then he reigns. And all of these headings are pushing us towards the last heading, the best heading. We see the Lord's work. He provides a, a new start for Israel. It's glorious. We're so thankful for it. We, we see the strange plan unfolding before us. And we see the pattern of Jesus' life in the midst of David's life. And we meditate on that. And then we come to this fourth heading. It's a glorious provision. So when we look at chapter 16, we have to pay attention to how the story is framed. And it's framed by two parallel statements. And so the first statement framing chapter 16 comes in verse 1. And the Lord is speaking to Samuel. And the Lord says this, I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So that's one side of the frame at the beginning of the chapter. Then on the back end of the chapter, providing the other side of the frame, we get this word from Saul's mouth, verse 17. Saul says to his men, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. So you notice something here. Both the Lord, both Saul, use the same language. The Lord says, I have provided, and then Saul says, provide for me. And both of these statements made by the Lord and by Saul do what? They both lead us to David. So the Lord says, I have provided, and then who do we meet? We meet the youngest son of Jesse. Then Saul says, provide for me, and then who do we meet? We meet the son of Jesse, a man skillful in playing. What's going on here? Well, chapter 16 wants us to think about the son of Jesse in a very specific way. The son is not just another character we're going to meet in this story. The story is not just another story that we have to work through. No, the text is guiding to us. It's preaching to us. The text is saying, if we, if we have ears to hear, here is the provision that you need. It's such a simple message that the text is saying, you need the son of Jesse. Chapter 16 is doing something for our hearts. It's stirring our hearts up to have this particular feeling in them. Chapter 16 wants us to, to yearn and long for the son of Jesse. And it's asking us, don't you love the son of Jesse? Don't you need him? Don't you desire him? And what's really interesting is what we find taking place in chapter 16 takes place elsewhere in the scriptures. So we can leave behind the story of First and Second Samuel, and we can move forward in Israel's history. We can move to the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah is preaching to Israel, and David is long dead, long buried, centuries in the ground. And Isaiah comes to the people of God, and what does he start preaching? He starts preaching about a son of Jesse. He says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And what is Isaiah, Isaiah saying to the people of God? You need a son of Jesse. And oh, may the Lord incline your hearts toward a son of Jesse. When we leave Isaiah behind and we move into the pages of the New Testament, we meet Jesus' apostles and they're evangelizing men and women. And what are they saying to them? They're saying, behold, the son of Jesse has come. 
here is the provision that you need, the son of Jesse, the Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever the gospel is preached this very day, that same message is sounded. You need the son of Jesse. Just think about it. You need the son of Jesse that was born into poverty and obscurity in the little town of Bethlehem, born to Mary and Joseph. You need the son of of Jesse who was clothed with the spirit and walked in humility before men and God. You need that son of Jesse who did not grasp for a crown or a throne You need that son of Jesse who was there in the midst of the sick and the demonized serving them. You need the son of Jesse who served his enemies and suffered without complaint at their hands. You need the son of Jesse who was beaten and whipped by Roman soldiers. Oh, more than anything else, you need the son of Jesse who was crucified on a Roman cross and died there, cursed. Oh, you need the son of Jesse who was raised on the third day, and after his waiting, after his suffering, after his dying, was raised up on high, seated at the right hand of power, and who rules and reigns over all things. The Bible tells us such a simple story, and the point is this, you need the son of Jesse. That's the whole story of the Bible. You need the son of Jesse. And so we've listened to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And what's going on in our hearts? Well, if the Spirit is working, our hearts are being turned towards David. And we can ask ourselves, do I love this David? Am I obsessed with this David? And we can take this assurance. If our hearts are being turned towards David, our hearts are being turned towards David's greater son, Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in this great gospel. We rejoice in its simplicity, a son of David. And he is exactly what we need. Oh, we pray, would you turn our hearts to him now? For he is before us, clearly in the gospel. Would you give us hands to to grab him? Would you give us feet to, to run to him? That we might have him forever. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Brothers and sisters, the son of Jesse has come. He waited, he suffered, he bled, he died, and now he is reigning 